Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today joining me in studio is Craig Manassian, Chief Communications and Marketing Officer for the Clinton Foundation. Founded by President Clinton shortly after leaving office, the Clinton Foundation works on issues directly or with strategic partners from the business, government, and nonprofit sectors to create economic opportunity, improve public health, and inspire civic engagement and service both in the U.S. and around the world. Craig initially joined the Clinton Foundation in 2005 as a consultant and then joined full-time in 2013 following a career in both entertainment at networks like HBO and in politics, having served as Assistant Press Secretary and Director of Television News in the Clinton White House. Over the past six years, he's helped to revitalize the organization and steer it through the contentious 2016 election. Craig's unique background has helped him lead the Clinton Foundation's communications, digital, and marketing efforts in the organization's comeback over the past few years as it's taken on new issues and challenges from hurricane relief in Puerto Rico to the Too Small to Fail Children's Literacy Initiative. Craig Manassian, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So we're going to start with a really hot topic, which I kind of alluded to in the introduction. The 2016 campaign saw unprecedented false attacks on the Clinton Foundation, which undermined the reputation of a charity that has received top marks from rating agencies and helped millions of people worldwide. A study from Harvard even confirmed that the Clinton Foundation was a primary target of quote-unquote disinformation and propaganda. And Charity Watch President Daniel Baratroff said, if Hillary Clinton wasn't running for president, the Clinton Foundation would be seen as the, one of the great humanitarian charities of our generation. So my question for you is, what was it like in 2016? I Remember, we don't have two hours. What was it like trying to fend off attacks while at the same time not get distracted and do your day job? Well, first of all, thank you for making me relive those days. I really appreciate that as the lead question. But it was really unprecedented. If you think about what's happening in the world now, and there's been a deliberate effort to undermine people's faith in institutions, you can see some of that at play in how the Clinton Foundation was attacked in 2016. And so, as you mentioned, charity rating agencies, philanthropic experts, all felt like what President Clinton and what Chelsea and the foundation were doing were very valuable. But there's a gross lack of understanding about how foundations work that made us a target that people who were our critics, political or otherwise, you know, tried to exploit. We always talk about the notion of storytelling and, and for all purpose-driven brands, you know, trying to get your story out and be creative about storytelling. And we like to think of what we went through in 2016 to sort of storytelling in a thunderstorm. We were trying to talk about what our work did. We were trying to help educate people about why we were doing what we did. And it was just yelling into the wind in a lot of respects. And some of that's the nature of social media, the kind of things that drive digital traffic, controversy and conflict always drive those things. Good news is a tough sell. Some of it is related to the media. Good news is a tough sell for any social impact organization. I don't think that's necessarily the fault of the media. It's just the dynamics of for-profit businesses, including the media. So there were a number of factors that most foundations had never gone through. And it was a real catch-22 about how you deal with it. You know, in the one sense, 
You could devote resources to perhaps advertising or defending yourself, but that would be taking away resources from the people that our programs help. But at the same time, you do have to defend yourself and defend your work. So we had to really think through how we do that in an appropriate way and be a responsible member of the philanthropic community. I mean, I think there are other people and organizations that react maybe differently or sort of place blame on others. That's not being a responsible member of the philanthropic community. So we try to balance all those goals and make sure that we were still telling our story. As someone who has a background in crisis and issues management and really loves the tradecraft, what were the one or two things that you think really helped in addition to just time? Because time sometimes helps as well, because the foundation was a soft target in a political environment, especially when you're running against someone who is very artful at distraction and also at creating false narratives. So we had talked about this off air. If there's a kernel of truth to something and you say it enough in this environment, it becomes true, even though it's wholly untrue. One thing we found, we made, I think, the misassumption that our supporters really understood what we did. And how you operate. And how you operate. And this is something that I think most nonprofits deal with. A lot of people support work for a particular reason. They don't spend a lot of time reading annual reports or other things, so they don't have the whole picture. But they're watching the same media that everybody else is. And so they were getting bombarded in election year with negative stories about what we did. And we knew we had to shore up our supporters first, make sure we were arming them with the facts. Another thing we realized is in the polarized political debate where people are taking sides, people weren't automatically going to take our word for it. They may not automatically take the critics' word for it, but they were looking to find something that if they were inclined to support us, that was sort of a third-party validation. So we spent a lot of time with fact-checking organizations, beneficiaries, independent validators to make sure there were things out there that showed these attacks weren't legitimate and talked about the good work that we were doing. So they were armed with something that wasn't just what we were saying. And because we found, as I'm sure you've seen with your work, when people want to engage on social platforms, whether Twitter or Facebook primarily, if they come at it from a side, they usually get shouted down by the other side. So giving them some kind of other validation to say, look, here's a story, here's a fact check, here's something else that helps them defend us was a key part of the strategy. And then really revamping what we did in digital. As I mentioned, we couldn't devote tens of millions of dollars to buying digital ads, but we could change how we do storytelling. We could make our video more compelling. We could control the things we could control and take advantage of the platforms we could on social media to make sure that was out there. And Hillary is not technically part of the foundation, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's still the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, but she doesn't have a formal role with it. And just because you talked about it before, just talk me through a little bit of how the foundation works. Oftentimes, and I think I make this mistake too, and when we were chatting, I think yesterday or the day before, I often will say, and I don't think it's a bad thing, I'll talk about the Clinton Foundation, and I'll also think about the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation. And I know the two are very different. One issues grants, right? The other doesn't. And and also your missions are slightly different, even though it's obviously to help improve and, and better the world and people's lives. And But can you talk about the differences a little bit? And, and I do think that they're not a false equivalent because I think to be next to them or at least to think about them is a good thing. It's absolutely not a false equivalent, but it does go to this, I think, lack of broad understanding about the role 
NGOs and foundations and charity have in society and how they work. The Gates Foundation is one of the most incredible organizations in the world. They're primarily grant making. So they are giving grants to other organizations like the Clinton Foundation to implement programs that fit with their priorities. And very tech and innovation and development focused in many ways. Global health, innovation, data. Sure. A large part of the Clinton Foundation. In fact, one of our first signature programs was to get people HIV and AIDS medicine at a lower cost. That was the first program, right? It's one of the first programs and the first one that people really, it became really known for. Gates is a huge funder of that. But where they do primarily grant making, we are an operating foundation, which means we are running the programs. We're actually hiring the people in communities that do the work. We are working with partners to build things, implement things, design things. So it's very tangible and hands-on. Very hands-on, right. And one is not better than the other. It's just It just speaks to the broad range of the sector. In fact, the most recent statistics we have from the Bureau of Labor Statistics put the employment in the nonprofit workforce about 10.2% of the private sector workforce. Uh, accounts for millions of jobs. It's a huge sector of our economy. But at the same time, media organizations have cut back on covering philanthropy because, ironically, it's not that profitable. So it contributes, uh, the Chronicle of Philanthropy had an interesting story about this a few years ago, it contributes to this misunderstanding. President Clinton always talks about this, that people may not realize that everything from the volunteer fire department to the Rockefeller Gates Foundation all share the same sector. They are all people who are devoting time. They're asking for resources to help other people. They're all organized as, as nonprofits. So it's a huge, huge part of society and One, I think, isn't that well understood. I totally agree with that. The flip side, and I think this is probably a positive unintended consequence of 2016, is that I do feel, and this is purely anecdotal, that there's more interest in purpose and in giving back and being associated with nonprofits and understanding the larger world, whether it's because of sustainability issues or other social, social justice issues than ever before. And yeah, and so I do think that's a positive One of the concerns I have, and I noticed that the Clinton Foundation works very closely with companies in a very successful way. One of the issues I have is that there are some companies out there that are kind of purpose washing, right? And where I net out on all that is that even if they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, at least they're doing the right thing and I'll take it. But I would like to see more companies do it for the right reason because people at the top of those companies care. It sounds to me that the Clinton Foundation this is my own opinion, has been a pioneer in working with a lot of these corporates to get them to think differently about how they run everything from their supply chain to their giving and to giving back to how they run their businesses. Is that in part because of Bill's relationships as well? And I mean, it has to be part of it, but also his ability to not only tell stories, but to convince even the biggest skeptics in the world to change the way they do business, the way they view the world, the way they give back. It's related to a few things. And I think it also reflects a trend in society. As you said, I think there is a lot more attention on it. We saw the number of CEOs that came together for the business roundtable earlier this year to to talk about redefining the mission of a corporation. That conversation has been evolving now for maybe about 15 or 20 years. And so we've seen it through our work. I think we've, we've helped corporations along that road, but it is this larger trend in, in society that I think is beneficial. I think when the president left office and and decided that 
he wanted to have a really robust foundation. It's because, as he says, as he said in his farewell speech from the White House, actually, the proudest title he will ever wear is that of citizen. And then really thought about what you could do as a private citizen with this enormous experience that he had. And one of the successes in how he approached public service was bringing diverse groups and people together to really work together on an issue. And so it stood to reason that a way he would approach the foundation is to bring the corporate sector, the government sector, the private sector, and the NGO sector and philanthropists together to try to tackle issues. That was the basis for the Clinton Global Initiative. And this is the whole live your best life story, right? The impetus for it a little bit? A little bit. That also is, he grew up, I'll make a plug for our podcast as as well. If you listen to our podcast, he, he talks about this quite a bit, which is he grew up where the entertainment in his household was storytelling. They didn't have a lot of money. They would sit around the table, uncles, aunts, cousins, and tell stories. And through that, he learned that a really important way to appreciate somebody else was to understand their story. And they become a multi-dimensional person. Today, we see a lot of two-dimensional ways people are described, issues are discussed. And in his mind and his experience, that's not the reality. So if you understand someone's story, then you understand them. And our goal in public service should be to help them live their best life story. And so that animates the philosophy that you were just discussing. And when it comes to the corporate world, the whole basis of the Clinton Global Initiative was to bring these various sectors together. And he would go to these thought leader conferences, which were really wonderful, like the World Economic Forum. And there were a lot of good ideas from corporate, government, civil society leaders about what we should do about poverty, what we should do about climate change, but they weren't asked or empowered to do anything with these ideas. And so when he started the Clinton Global Initiative, the idea was, let's bring those same groups together, but have an action-oriented step. So to come to the meeting, to be a member of the initiative, you had to make a commitment, which was launching a new plan or project that addressed a global challenge. And it was largely done through corporations partnering with governments and NGOs. And what we found, I think this was the trend at the time, as well, that corporate philanthropy was changing. It had been very place-based or priority-based. Very linear. Very linear. Very, we have manufacturing operations somewhere. We want to support people, education, institutions. And, and it was kind of a check-the-box type thing, right? For some. For some, not all. Not all. But there's definitely been an enlightenment and awareness about how corporations can be a good corporate citizen. So, Some came to CGI with a very well-developed sense of what they want to do. A lot came to say, we want to learn how to be a better corporate citizen, and we think we have an idea, but we know that there are partners that we need to execute it. Is there one that comes to mind that was a complete 180? Not that they what they did before was bad, but let's say they weren't doing enough, but they had aspiration to do more, and then they came to CGI, and it sparked something much bigger or even surprised you. I'm not sure that there was a eureka moment on the part of a CEO coming to CGI. I think what CGI helped do, though, is encourage companies to use what resources they had in perhaps a different way. And it helped people understand a little bit better about how the corporations can be a responsible actor in the world. So, for example, Coke is incredibly popular all over the world. They realized that they were missing some opportunities in certain places that they could be training women to be 
distributors or entrepreneurs and help empower them in their own business. Now, Coke benefited from that because it created a more reliable supply chain, but it also really tangibly improved the lives of people in the developing world by giving them new career options and economically empowering themselves. Now, how did they do that? They partnered with other organizations and NGOs to do it in a very responsible way. There was a great commitment that Coke made about partnering with global health organizations to use their very sophisticated delivery system to deliver vaccines and medicines and other places to hard to reach places. So the average consumer doesn't really think they think Coke, whatever they think about Coke, they're probably not thinking Coke is actually using this distribution system that is delivering soft drinks and water and fruit drinks to also deliver medicine. And so those are the kind of turning the prism a little bit that we saw a lot through CGI to say, what do we have that could be a resource to help people that corporations were really responding to? And there's a mutuality to it in that everybody kind of wins. All the parties win. Ben and Jerry's calls it linked prosperity, which I really like. Procter & Gamble was a good example. They had a product that they thought would be viable in the marketplace called Pure. It was a very simple way to make potable water. There really wasn't a market for it. So they decided they were going to give it away. Was it a tablet? It was a little tablet. And so they partnered with World Vision and a lot of other organizations that were trying to improve water quality around the world to distribute these. And now it's been tens of millions of gallons of potable water that's been provided to people who otherwise didn't have clean water to drink or wash or or bathe with. And so there was a case where I suppose they could have just taken a loss on the product and said, put product in development, it didn't work. But they decided that they could be a, a very good corporate citizen and actually really help people in a very tangible way. So those were the kind of things we saw through CGI and CGI commitments. It must be really frustrating for you, though, trying to pitch stories like that while you're getting derailed and distracted by politically driven, agenda driven bullshit, right? Because you think about all the great things that you're doing, but reporters don't want to talk about that. Or or fewer want to talk about it than we would want, right? Fewer. And I think there are one byproduct of technology, you've seen more platforms who do care about this. So there are organizations like DevX or The Guardian has done a very good job on this. Places like The Economist have put more effort into talking about global issues and how philanthropies address them. So there are more places that are doing it. It still remains an underreported part of the broader media landscape. Some of that is because of the competitive pressures on the media business. I think reporters, at least in my experience, typically are sympathetic to the goals. Of course, let's try to help society. But there are commercial pressures as well. The commercial pressures get in the way. And because I, I do think that the lion's share of media that we work with also believe what they're doing is a benefit to society. And it's hard to argue with the fact that they are reading the press and shining a light on institutions' health. If there's a really good news story about how we're empowering farmers in Africa to have better yields versus some kind of news of the day coming out of Washington, it's not a fair fight. So speaking of unfair fights and not understanding how foundations work, you also have attacks from the the right. You know, you look at like Breitbart or Fox and they're like, oh, the Clinton Revenue Foundations are down since the 2016 election. Whereas we've seen rage donations go up and within other organizations like Planned Parenthood or whatnot. And I think also, and I think it'd be good to talk about this to clarify it, they're not seeing the full picture. 
by design based on the type of outlet that they are. But if you can talk a little bit about what the rest of that picture is and how revenue is just a tenth or a fraction of the story and it doesn't tell the complete story or it doesn't necessarily also mean that we're not successful over the past four or five years or since 2016. And I think it's important to look at these stories in two categories. There are the utterly false attacks where they just make stuff up. Right. Russia donates $200 million to yeah. the Clinton Foundation. Or there were ridiculous stories. We're all, I think, or people who've paid attention, very familiar with the, the tragic consequences of the Pizzagate claiming that we were running some scandalous operations out of a pizzeria in D.C. that ended up motivating someone to show up there with a gun to, you know, bust us. And that's the pure insanity category. Yeah, that is the pure insanity category. But it looks real if you're looking at it on Facebook. And you're going to click on it. You're like, hmm, what's that? (laughs) Right. There's a large aspect of that. Then there is just a flat-out distortion of the facts, and they know they're distorting the facts. And this goes back to the understanding about how foundations work. So, yes, there has been a slew of... I would say bias reporting saying that revenues are down because Hillary Clinton is not running for president. Therefore, people cannot buy access. The reality is, and if you follow how accounting procedures work, and keeping in mind that we are one of the most transparent organizations in the space, we post all our donors. There's no requirement for nonprofits to do that. Obviously, our tax forms are available. We do audited financials as others in the sector do. And you're consistently ranked and rated as one of the best charities. Yes. The charity watchdog groups who look at this for a living. Navigators, all of them. All give us top yeah. marks. So they will take a, a fact and twist it. And so the fact is we were raising an endowment before Secretary Clinton decided to run. And the accounting rules are such that If somebody makes a pledge, even if that pledge is not going to be paid for another 10 or 20 years, you report it when they make it. And so by raising this endowment, which is a responsible thing to do for foundations, it inherently means that when you're done with that endowment campaign, you will not have as as much revenue to report as you did before. So they take this and they say, look, donors are fleeing. They're not supporting it. When in the reality, and you see other reporters that actually show this, the Clint Foundation's programmatic work is expanding. We still have tens of millions of dollars in donation. We still have hundreds of thousands of supporters. And we're working with new partners all the time and expanding into new areas. That is frustrating, in case you couldn't tell in the tone of my, no. tone of my voice. To our generation, and I can say this because we're the same age, you're 49, right? 49, yes. Congratulations. Thank, thank you for that, too. <laughs> Clinton, to me, is what Obama has been to the generation of 2008 in terms of representing hope and optimism, a very good storyteller, and someone even more so than Obama, quite frankly, who can bring disparate parties together. Talk a little bit about what happens behind the scenes, the magic of Bill Clinton and how he does that. Because I don't think there's anybody quite like that that's living today who has that type of skill and that type of talent. You touched on it a little bit earlier. But when he walks into the room, what is it like in terms of his ability to convince even the most hardened skeptic or naysayer? What's it like to witness that and be part of that? Well, I think you also bring up a a question we get a lot is how actively involved the president and Chelsea Clinton are in the foundation. And the answer is very. 
the programs are born from things that they care about. I think most people know Chelsea is a global health expert on her own and priorities they see we could uniquely address. And sometimes it comes from people who look at the convening power of President Clinton and say, you could really help. So unfortunately, there was a stretch of time where some of our work was dealing with disaster relief. It was Hurricane Katrina. It was like one after the other. Tsunami in Southeast Asia. It was the devastation in Haiti. The president was called to serve by everyone from President Bush to President Obama to the United Nations to say, can you help? Can you do what you do so well, put together partners and organizations and be the honest broker to help get aid to the people and make an assessment? And how people respond when they walk in the room is knowing that in the president, here's someone who has done this. Here's someone who has tackled incredibly complex issues at the highest level of government, and so understands uniquely where they're coming from. And as you've probably seen in your own work, sometimes there is a desire, which is tempered by a reluctance. I would love to be involved in this, but my board might not want us to go in that direction. Or is this a responsible thing for my organization? Or could we make a difference? So they know in the present that he has been in that seat as a governor, as an attorney general, as a president, as a philanthropic leader, to understand how to find common ground that allows people to move forward on an issue. And that's what it's like in the room. And how to force rank issues, because the other issue I imagine you're dealing with is there's so many things you can be doing. You can't have 80% of it be ad hoc. You can probably allow for 10, 15% of it to be ad hoc, but the rest needs to be systemic or systematic, right? Aspirations have to be executed. He spends a lot of time making sure that if we get involved with something, we can actually deliver. There have been programs in the past that we've looked at, we've considered doing early on in the foundation. We talked a little bit about the HIV and AIDS work. We started looking at whether we could be a catalyst to provide clean water, whether that was a role we could fill. And we looked at it and decided there were already a lot of really good organizations that were working in that space. We could be additive in other ways through the Clinton Global Initiative and bringing them together. But we didn't need to take it on as a whole initiative because there was already enough people doing it. And so we moved on to other things. So there's also the idea of incubation. He sees the foundation a very dynamic thing. And there's a whole, as you probably know, there's a, a debate in some sectors of philanthropy to say, if you've achieved your mission, should you still be pursuing that same mission? The president has always felt like one of our goals is to incubate ideas, incubate programs, spin them out. Be a catalyst. Yeah. Right. What do you think he would say he wants the legacy of the foundation to be? And I don't mean legacy in terms of it's ever going to end, but what does he want it to be known for in five, 10 years, or even today? First and foremost, he's focused on the tangible impact. As many people as we could possibly help in as many places, in as many ways as we could do it. I think he broadly hopes that, and it's part of one of our, our mission statement, is that it inspires people to get involved, not just with the Clinton Foundation, but in their own communities through whatever way they want to serve. Kind of like this podcast. Kind of like this podcast, yeah. Because he'd be very, he'd be very pleased. That is the goal of the podcast. And that looking back, people will say that he and Chelsea and Secretary Clinton and the whole foundation operation transformed some approaches to philanthropy, but also really at his heart was putting people first. And our goal was to wake up every day and figure out 
whatever we can do to help people. How big is the foundation in terms of staff and how are you structured? We have about 200 full-time staff. Most of that is in New York now. There are a number of people working around the world through our affiliated programs. There are, I don't recall the exact number. I think about 1,500 people that work on our HIV and AIDS initiative, which is one of the initiatives that's become a separate 5013 charity. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you spun that out. But so the Clinton Health Access Initiative, but it has its its own board and 513 status. Another big aspect of all presidential foundations is the presidential center, which encompasses the presidential library and the archives. And that's in Little Rock. And one thing that's been important to President Clinton and I think a lot of more recent presidents, President Bush and President Obama, is that the center themselves are not just a, it's not self-serving, that you can draw lessons from it that are going to inspire the next generation of leaders. In fact, one of our new programs, relatively new programs, is called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program that is a partnership between the Clinton Foundation, the Bush Center, Lyndon Johnson's Presidential Center, and President Bush Senior Center. So those four presidential centers all get together, and there's a class of presidential leadership scholars that goes through the program every spring from all walks of life, doctors, military, nonprofit workers, financial executives. And they, in a similar way to CGI, apply with a, an approach to a problem they would like to try in their lives and careers. And so as they develop that, they go through these leadership seminars at each presidential center to learn lessons from those administrations about how decisions were made, what the pros and cons were, how you become an effective leader. And it's a really remarkable program. And so President Clinton and his other presidents really see their centers as dynamic sources of learning, but also catalysts economically for their community. And that's very much what the Presidential Center does in Little Rock. It is a huge driver of supporting education and other community organizations in Little Rock. So that's a big part of the foundation as well. And as someone who has a very long background in politics, do you think that we can get back to civil discourse? I think people are trying. So it's, so it's not like one of those things where this is just the way it is from now on. I mean, please say no. I, I sure hope not. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. And I think that my optimism about that largely comes from President Clinton's optimism about that. And that optimism comes from actually seeing people every day that we interact with through our work. You know, there is the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program I mentioned, you know, who in this environment, if you said there are going to be the presidential centers of two Republican presidents and two Democrat presidents that are working together for a shared goal, that might seem absurd, but it's happening and it's really breaking down barriers between groups of people who may not otherwise meet. And they're creating this incredible network that we hope is going to benefit their communities for years and years and years. So seeing that, that kind of optimism gives us a lot of hope. One of the programs we were working on recently, which is, we were talking about how we develop these programs, is our opioid work. And President Clinton and their whole family knew young people who tragically died from overdoses of mixing opioids and alcohol and and other things and um, didn't have a lot of education about the dangers. So I felt like this is something we could uniquely tackle. So we're now working with faith leaders, with schools, with the providers of antidotes like naloxone to make sure that first responders have what they need to 
help people overcome and overdose quickly, and work with the most influential people in communities to make sure that the education is getting out there. So there's another thing. You know, people, when you think from a political divide, you think religious institutions probably would want to stay as far away from the Clinton Foundation as possible. If you just read the news, right? They viewed religion seems to be owned by the right, although I think that's an unfair characterization, obviously. And they were perceived to be a political organization of the left, which we're not. And so these partnerships, multi-denominational partnerships, interfaith partnerships across conservative religious institutions to more liberal ones are all working together to try to address this crisis. So seeing those things on the ground gives us a lot of hope because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, people are just trying to do the best things for their family and they're looking for organizations that are going to help them and help their kids and help society. And so that gives us a lot of hope that this kind of polarization will, will someday recede. I've long said that being human centered does not go left or right. Right. That's right. It's, it's squarely on the human being and helping humanity. So I think that does make a lot of sense. We've obviously done quite a bit of disaster recovery work. The evolution of the Clint Global Initiative meeting is these very focused action networks around hurricane recovery. We're still working in Puerto Rico. We're still bringing partners together. We have another CGI meeting where we're bringing the corporate sector and the philanthropic together in Puerto Rico next year to make sure people aren't forgetting about the needs and throughout the whole Caribbean. Not once has one of the people who is going to help to rebuild their lives ever said, are you a Democrat or Republican? Of course not. No. How hard is it when you talk about opioid addiction, because that's a great example, that's for the most part an apolitical issue. It's a humanity issue, except for when it comes to, you're, on one hand, the CGI is dealing with corporations. And sometimes my guess is that those corporations are also pharmaceutical companies, not just CPG companies. Do you go as far as to not just talk to spiritual leaders and community-based organizations, but would you also then try to meet with, lawsuits aside, a pharmaceutical company to then counsel them or ask them or work with them to rethink distribution and addiction and how we can make things better? Broadly, it's going to take so many sectors to act to overcome this crisis. And so the pharmaceutical companies have to be part of that equation. As the program is growing, the immediate needs are to make sure that we're getting... It's on the population. Yeah, it's education and making sure that the antidote is out there. Now, it's great that government, local, state, even federal government is starting to get involved as well. Some of the interactions with the pharmaceutical companies are best left to those institutions and regulators. But it takes everybody. We would never rule out meeting with someone that wants to help. But right now where we're focused is how we're actually getting the antidote to this and the education to people. So we're reducing overdoses and getting people up there because you really can save lives at that first moment. You also have this, maybe I'm mischaracterizing this, but this like left brain, right brain background. And you still do have a career in entertainment and in kind of show business. Kind of, I just did air quotes. Um, and then also politics. Can you help navigate for me what that intersection is and how one helps the other? Sure. And is it really left brain, right brain, or is it the same brain? I think in my case, it, it's definitely the same brain and, and not enough of it. So, um, but one thing that the foundation has fostered and, and President Clinton has fostered is a real 
diversity of people and backgrounds and experiences that, that comes to the work. One of the ways we started rethinking how we tell our story in 2016 and after 2016 is to start thinking about it. How do other organizations that make people, there could be a little bit of like foundation work that's like eating your vegetables. People know you're doing good work. They want to support it, but it's not, they're not actively trying to consume information about it because it's not entertaining. Unless you watch Game Changers on Netflix. Game Changers is a great example. You're seeing more of it. I mean, I, it, it's been interesting. I'm now a two-thirds vegan. I try and eat two out of three meals a day vegan. The idea that documentary work is both more popular than ever and the barriers to entry and distribution are not only more accessible, but they're actually making a difference in society. You're seeing more nonprofits go into that area. Ford Foundation has a tremendous program called Just Films Uh that supports films that are educating people about social justice and telling these compelling stories. That is a relatively new phenomenon about approaches foundations take to achieve their mission. In our case, I drew on my background and said, could our team think like a programming executive at a network and not just a program officer at a foundation? So a program officer is very much thinking about how do we help more people? How do we make the programs effective? How do we meet the need? Program executive is what are people going to watch? What is the story? How do we get people drawn into the idea? It's really about engagement. It's about engagement. And so then when you break it down, you say, what do both sectors have in common? Well, what we know is a reliable driver of narratives are characters, conflict, ticking clock, high stakes. That's the nonprofit sector. When people are dealing with global challenges from poverty alleviation to climate change, there's a ticking clock. There are characters you can relate to. There's obviously a conflict. So there's a good story there. So we've tried to move more in that direction and figure out how we can tell the story in that way. And then where are the partners we could do it with? And that's, we do a lot of media partnerships. That's also informed by the whole notion of partnerships at the foundation. So much of our work is about working with partners. We started to say, could our communications and marketing strategy also be dependent on partnership or informed by partnership? And so we've had a lot of partnerships with media organizations that help us tell our story. So one of the reasons I mentioned our podcast called Why Am I Telling You This? decided to launch it. Here was a medium, as you found, that people are willing to stick with an issue if it's compelling and story-driven. We knew President Clinton was great at that. We knew that the people in our network have really compelling stories to tell. If the president can draw them out, that makes for some compelling content. The hallmark of President Clinton, among many, is that he's looking at things in alternative ways, right? So we always think about that fame going on Arsenio Hall when Arsenio Hall had a show. But he was probably one of the first, if not the first presidents to really embrace entertainment and influencers and quote unquote celebrities to help disseminate the message and engage people. And I think that's a lot of what you're saying as well. One of our programs is Too Small to Fail, which is about improving early childhood education, encouraging parents and caregivers to talk, read, and sing to kids zero to five. There is obviously an enormous volume of studies that show that brain development at that age and language skills are the biggest predictor of success, academic success, education, general success in life. So it's important for them to get... It's too late for us. It's definitely too late for us. And so through research, we realized that a lot of the people that we want to reach are watching entertainment programming, not surprisingly. 
And so Chelsea led these discussions with writers and creators and networks, studios and entertainment to say, here's research, here's what we're doing about it. Can you build these into your storylines? We don't want credit. You can watch these shows. It doesn't say the Clinton Foundation, but shows every everything from Orange is the New Black to the Middle to you name it have put into storylines the importance of reading, talking, and singing to kids in a very natural way to their characters. And we've seen it be a real success. It's really kind of nonprofit product placement. In a way. Without the product. The product being start reading, singing, and engaging with your children below the age of five in order to make them better adults one day. It's also understanding, are there new ways to tell the story? And taking into account that people, as we were talking about journalists, generally want to make a difference in their lives. So if someone is writing a sitcom, they may not immediately think that there's a way to use that sitcom to do something beneficial. But if you can show them that there are things that are both creatively interesting for what they're doing, but also make an impact, you know, there's an open hearing. Without it being too explicit or too heavy-handed where you get eye rolls and you're like, oh God, another social statement. And that's sort of the evolution of PSA. It's like That's the balance, right? That's the balance. And I think at least from my point of view, I'm very comfortable with that area and understand the creative tensions that make those things work. So we've done, Stephen Colbert came to the Clinton Global Initiative University meeting, did essentially a giant town hall with a thousand university students from around the world where he interviewed President Clinton as part of it, but also really embraced it and decided to launch his own Colbert Galactic Initiative because the Clinton Global Initiative right. was thinking so small, we yeah. should think broader. Well, he'll, he'll have a space force to help protect he him. He will have a space force. I think he launched it at, at that. And his character, which was brilliant on their writer's part, went from relatively ignorant that students could really do world-changing things to inspired, and then he wanted to do it all. And the payoff was he built a paper mache volcano that was one of those, you know, drop the Mentos in the soda bottle. And then the volcano covered every possible challenge he could think of from poverty to climate change to say, I'm going to do it all. And it was funny and it worked for the show and we played along and it got people to think about what these students are doing in a different way in a, in a venue that isn't like eating your vegetables. I think particularly nonprofits have to be more creative about how they do this. We did a VR film. In fact, President Clinton was the first president to be in a VR film, and we got a, an Emmy nomination for it, where we, we filmed him and Chelsea on a trip to Africa to bring people inside the reality of the people's lives that were helping. That was several years ago. Now VR is a more common tactic, and a lot of nonprofits are using it to help educate donors about their dramatic needs. I, I saw a great forgetting the name of the organization, but an organization went to Nepal after the earthquake and did this really dynamic VR film about the consequences, which you just don't get by reading it in the paper or even seeing it on the two-dimensional news. And it really helps secure a lot more donors and give them a better appreciation for the need. Before I forget, because you mentioned Stephen Colbert, the Colbert-Anderson Cooper interview, I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, I did. I don't think I got enough play. I know they just replayed it the other night. That was one of the most intense. I mean, I was crying. One of the most intense, genuine interviews of two people, two human beings who are unscripted talking about their lives. And really what, what it was about 
was having purpose in your life. And there was like a little bit of religion, but not to the point where you feel uncomfortable or creepy, but it was really more humanity-based. So that's just a plug for that interview if people want to search. It was incredible. This goes back to viewing people as three-dimensional. Stephen is an incredible person and really he cares about society. Now, he's doing comedy, just like Trevor Noah is doing comedy or Seth Meyers is doing comedy, and there's a responsibility to deliver a entertaining show. He's a deep human being. You find this, and I'm not saying it's unique among comics, but Trevor has tried to give back in South Africa by starting a education foundation for young kids who had similar experiences to he did growing up. If, you, if you've read his book, Born a Crime, you see this person who saw violence, he was young at the end of apartheid, things that we couldn't even imagine that influence how he looks at America and his his show. Stephen, growing up in South Carolina, the experiences he had as a youth and the values that he had inform who he is. It doesn't necessarily inform their each individual joke, but it is a bigger purpose that they realize and they care about when they're entertaining people. And a lot of personal tragedy that helped kind of form who they are today. Listen, Craig, it was great having you on. We could probably go on for hours and hours. Maybe we'll do a part two (laughs) in 2020. Well, we really appreciate the attention and helping us talk about the work and bring some attention to the sector and how it's helping people. So thank you for having me. And just tell us one more time, what's the best way to get involved with CGI? To get involved with CGI or the Clinton Foundation, just go to clintonfoundation.org. And fortunately for us, there are a lot of programs. If you care about economic opportunity, if you care about improving public health, if you care about inspiring civic service and engagement, we have a program for you. If you're a living, breathing human being, you can care about at least one of those things. (laughs) I hope so. All right. Thanks again. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.